And uh, those of you staying out here, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. If you think about it uh, this week um, or even this evening as we're looking at God's Word, um, this is sort of uh, the typical um, flu season, cold season, and I know we have several people in the congregation who are dealing with those type of things. So just, um, you know, I think sometimes the regular sicknesses that you were always around the last two or three years, we didn't seem to think about those because everything was so focused on COVID. Uh, and so those other ones seem to be coming back with a bit of a vengeance. Uh, so pray for, pray for just those that are dealing with sickness and illness uh, in the congregation and, and others that you know as well. This evening, we're going to look at the pattern of thanksgiving. So we're taking a little bit of a diversion from our look at uh, Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And I thought it would be appropriate for us uh, to look at the pattern that Paul gives us for giving thanks found in Ephesians chapter 5. So we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 21. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14. Now, one of the things we're doing is we're sort of jumping into the middle of an extended discussion that Paul is having. Um, And, you know, Ephesians chapter 5, when you think about that passage, most likely what comes to your mind is the instructions that's given to wives and to husbands. Likely because there's a lot of debate and a lot of discussion about that particular subject. But um, this first half of Ephesians chapter 5 really deals with practical Um, admonitions, practical commands that the Apostle Paul gives us, and then sort of how we're to live our lives with the focus of our minds and and the way that we're supposed to go about carrying and conducting ourselves in the world around us. And it's no surprise then that Paul draws to a close these thoughts by focusing on thanksgiving. So look with me in Ephesians chapter 5. We'll begin in verse 14. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil." Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything. To God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your eternal, infallible, inspired, and powerful word. Lord, may you take it and may it be the sharp two-edged sword that pierces to the dividing of our souls and marrows, to the joints of our lives, Father, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Father, use your word as a surgeon would use a scalpel to cut away the sinful inclinations in our lives, and Father, to bring about healing, healing from the sickness and disease of sin, Father, so that we may live 
not as those who are in the darkness, but as children of light. We pray these things in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. I was sort of challenged about focusing on this, in particular with an event that happened with uh, the university, uh, my alma mater that I went to for both undergraduate and graduate school uh, in seminary. There was a uh, decision that was being made by the board of uh, trustees uh, regarding just certain things, staffing and different things like that at the university. I don't want to delve into all the stuff because most of you, in fact, don't think any of you are, except for my wife, are graduates of this university. So you don't really care about the inter-university politics that were going on. But there was a Facebook group that was made about this, and, and the decision came out into what was the majority, the vast majority of people's desires. So they got what they wanted. And as I was looking on Facebook and seeing posts that were put up in this group over and over again, many of them were saying that they were giving thanks to God that He had worked in the way that He had. They gave thanks because, and I think ultimately a lot of it was because God had acted according to their desires. I think that's a natural way that we tend to look at giving thanks. We get what we want And so we give thanks to God for what we've gotten. But when our so when our desires align with what God ultimately does, then should we not give thanks? Yes, of course. But what about when God does something contrary to our desires? Is our first response to give thanks to Him? My thought was, as I read over and and talked about how people were extolling God's goodness and God's graciousness and God's blessing, and, and I thought if the decision had gone differently, God still was good, God still was gracious, and God still had given many blessings from His grace. And so that didn't, what happened wasn't what was dependent upon what God's character was. And so I think. The question we need to address this evening, the thing we need to consider is when we don't get what we want, when God does not work in ways that are according to our desires, when He works contrary to our desires, do we still give thanks? Is that our first response or do we ultimately run to complaining or plotting how we can change the situation? Maybe those of us who are more quote-unquote spiritual will give lip service to thanksgiving because we know that's what we ought to do. We know that we're supposed to give thanks in everything for all things, as Paul tells us here, but in reality, in the desires of our hearts and the ways that we carry ourselves and the ways that we think, we are often discontent. See, we're willing to give thanks when we get what we want, but we often neglect thanks when our desires are frustrated. And so what Paul is calling us to here in this passage is that we must engage in, and I'm going to call it the discipline of thanksgiving, because I think that it requires true effort on our parts to give thanks. And we're going to do that, and and Paul is calling us to do that for every providential act of God in our lives, everything that happens. And again, This sort of focuses in on what Paul says in verse 20. We're to give thanks how often? 
always, and we're to give thanks for what things? Everything. Always and everything. Now, how do we get there? How do we get to the point where we can give thanks always and we can give thanks for everything? So there are, um, it's either four, there are five things I'd like us to consider this evening. Um, and I know you guys are getting spoiled with Bart's short sermons on Sunday mornings. Uh, sorry, you got me this evening, but uh, we'll, we'll get through it in a reasonable amount of time. Um, the first thing we're going to look at is that we are to, that giving thanks requires a concentrated effort. Giving thanks required, requires a concentrated effort. We see in verse 14, Paul begins or sort of is, is continuing on with the thought of how we're to be different from the world, how we're to walk in the light, not in the darkness. And that means a number of different things. It means in the way that we think. It means in the actions that we do. We're to be different from the world around us. But then he points us to recognize that this all comes about because we are in the light because of what Christ has done. Look at verse 14. Anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I think the first thing we have to recognize that's going to help us go towards this path of giving thanks always and for everything is we have to strive to reflect on the glory of Christ. Paul is not saying or calling us to give thanks always and for everything, just sort of out of the blue. He says it in the midst of his discussing how it is that we are different from the world around us. And that difference begins with seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. Our awareness of the light of Christ is a gift from God. The very fact that you know who Christ is, that is a gift from our Heavenly Father. That we can know and see His glory. And that glory that Christ has is the very thing that transforms us. We see this in John chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus says that when He is lifted up from the earth, and this is speaking of His being lifted up on the cross, that is when He will draw all people to Himself. That the glory of Christ spans and goes beyond ethnic, racial, cultural boundaries. That what Christ accomplished on the cross brings about true transformation as we see in what from one perspective seems to be the most demeaning aspect of Christ's life. It actually becomes the greatest aspect of His glory. That what He has done on the cross shows His glory. And that reality is related to us in His Word. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3 that as we come with unveiled faces, as we, as the Spirit who has given us new life, has shown Christ, who's, who's shown upon us, that veil is lifted and we look in the Word of God. And what do we see? We see, we behold the glory of the Lord. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. When we read Scripture, it is Christ's glory that is shining upon us. It is arousing us, as Paul is saying in this passage, out of our deadness, out of our sleep, so that we can walk forward. And as we see that glory, we then are changed into that same image from one degree of glory to the other. All of this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The glory of Christ declared in the cross 
has a palpable and obvious effect on our lives at all moments. It's constantly changing us. What Paul is saying here in verse 14 becomes then the basis for everything else that he's going to exhort. And really, it it forms sort of a, a pivot for the entire book to some extent. Why should we live our lives the way that we should? Why should wives and husbands relate to each other the way that Paul tells them to relate to each other? Why should children and parents uh, relate to each other? Why should bond servants and masters relate to each other? Why should we live a new life? What is the point of all of it? And it is that Christ has shown upon us. So we cannot truly give thanks to God apart from a knowledge of the glory of Jesus Christ. We cannot be thankful without first marveling at what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. Because the very ability to see who He is, and that vision is the very thing that changes everything about us, that itself is a gift from God. Notice what John says in John 3.19. This is judgment. Light has come into the world. And do people run to the light? No. What do they people love? Darkness. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. But Paul is calling us to do what John tells us in his epistle. We are to walk in what? The light. As Christ is in the light. And if we do this, we will have fellowship with one another And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So giving thanks, we recognize, requires a concerted effort. And that means that we must strive to focus on the glory of Christ. I think this is very helpful, particularly when we are encountering times where we are ungrateful, when we are disgruntled, and we want to mumble and murmur against our Lord just one glance at the cross and how can we not be thankful? Just one scene of what Christ has done to claim us as His own should cause us and drive us to be thankful in all things. So, we must first strive to see the glory of Christ. But then secondly, as we are having this concentrated effort, we are to strive for wisdom in our daily lives. Look at verse 15. He says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So as we see the glory of Christ, the next step to producing within us a thankful attitude is to look carefully to walk a life that is rooted in God's wisdom. Paul turns from taking the glory of Christ, and now he says, let's talk about your everyday life. Let's talk about the things that happen between the time you get your bed, get your, get your bed out, of, out of your head. When you get your head out of your bed in the morning and you lay it down at night. How is that supposed to affect your everyday life. And he tells us to particularly look carefully. I think this is one thing that we often don't think about. When God tells you to do something, 
We call that a what? A command, all right? What are we supposed to do when God commands us to do something? Obey. So what is God calling us to do here? He's calling us to be careful. We can't go about our Christian lives haphazardly. If we approach the Christian life that way, it's going to bring nothing but destruction and nothing but failure. We can't, we can't just sort of think that we're going to fall into doing the right thing. We have to be careful. We have to consider and strive to walk wisely. It cannot be a haphazard attitude. The implication here is that if we're not walking carefully, we're going to fall in doing what we've been called to do. And what is it that we've been called to do? Look carefully how you what? Walk. What, what does that mean? I mean, he's not, he's not literally talking about making sure that we watch where we're walking in our physical lives. Although, I will say sometimes that's a useful thing. When I was in high school, um, I played soccer, and I sprained my one... Well, actually, it was in basketball, but I sprained my ankle really, really badly. Um, and so, as a result of that, like, it will sometimes just give way for no apparent reason if I step on something just the wrong way. Um, so, if I'm not looking carefully, I'm going to be falling all over the place. So, in instances like that, yes, we should look carefully to how we walk. But here he's talking about our everyday lives, the things that make up, again, when we raise our head up from our bed in the morning and put it down to sleep at night. We are to walk carefully. The implication here is that if we're not careful, then we're going to walk into danger. We're going to walk into situations that are going to be painful or disastrous for us. I remember when we, uh, this earlier this year in the spring, we took a trip with uh, um, uh, some of our family to Deep Creek, Maryland. And there in Deep Creek, there is this, this sort of beautiful uh, walkway, hiking path that you can go on called Swallow Falls. And, um, and it's, you know, there's these nice easy path that you can walk, but then you can go out and there's like rocks and, and jagged ridges that you can walk on. And of course, you know, I'm, at this point was almost 40. I'm thinking, oh, I can do all these things by myself. And so I'm climbing up on these things and, and jumping all around. And Rita's about having a heart attack because she thinks he's a 40-year-old guy. I don't want my husband to die out here or anything like that. You know, when I'm doing that type of thing, when I'm in these hazardous situations, I thankfully look and see where I'm putting my feet because I know that each step is important and if I am haphazard at where I put my feet I could slip I could fall I could end up going down the falls and that would not be a good thing that's the type of attitude that Paul is calling us to we are to look carefully how we walk now what should we do and notice what he says not as unwise but as wise. We're to walk wisely, not unwisely. Now, what does that look like? What does wisdom in our daily walk look like? And he gives us two particular things to focus on. The first is what do we do with our time? Look at verse 16. Making the best use of the time. I think if there's anything that we are haphazard with, it is how we use our time. You realize, again, that every breath of your lungs is a gift of God's grace. 
And you also realize that the amount of time we have here on this earth is very short. The Bible speaks of our lives as but a vapor. Ecclesiastes speaks about this. We're here today and we're gone tomorrow. Why should we think about and be careful in the way that we use our time? Well, because, he says in verse 16, the days are what? Evil. The days are evil. This brings a certain urgency to the way that we spend our lives. If it is true, says Peter, and what we've looked at in, in 1 Peter, that the end of all things is at hand, right? If, if we truly are heading closer and closer to the end of the world, then we need to truly think of time as a resource, a limited resource. Today we are closer to the destruction of our world than we have ever been before. And tomorrow, if we're still here by God's grace, we will be closer to the destruction of this world than we were today. That, that is the idea that Peter is trying to get across. And so, what do we see in the world around us as the world is heading headlong to its destruction? Do we see them reflecting the glory of Christ? No. We see more and more evil propagating. Things are not getting better. They're getting worse. So we must strive to, as we reflect on the glory of Christ, use our time wisely to proclaim His glory, to reflect His glory. And that takes us back again to why Paul is pointing us to strive to look at who Christ is. We cannot reflect Christ's glory unless we know Christ's glory. We can't do it apart from viewing it and seeing it. And so we need to use our time to show people that there is a difference, that the evil around them is not the only option, that they can find hope in Christ. So we strive, first of all, by making the best use of our time. That is how we are wise in our walk. And then secondly, he says in verse 17, do not be foolish. So again, he's talking about wisdom. But rather, we're to understand what the will of the Lord is. Using our time wisely, we now turn to living a life that is in adherence to the will of God. Now, I, I fear that oftentimes we think of the will of God as this mysterious, cryptic, unknowable thing. And I think it's because we oftentimes describe or think about the will of God as, as regards things that He doesn't specifically tell us about. Like, should I take this job? Should I not take this job? Should I buy more ham for Pastor Phil this Christmas season? Or should I not buy more ham for Pastor Phil this season? And of course, we all know God's will is to buy more ham for Pastor Phil this season. You know, we think about it in, in those regards, and you know, God is not going to reveal to you how much ham you should buy me for Christmas. I will leave that between you and, and how, many, how many pigs are out there in the world or whatever, sorry. All right, I'm done with the ham references. God's will is not some unknowable, mystic thing. It's knowable. How? Through His Word. Peter, who saw Christ 
transfigured, saw his glory radiating on the Mount of Transfiguration, he says that he has something more fully confirmed. Which is what? The prophetic word. The word of God. And what are we supposed to do with the prophetic word? We're to look to it as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. How do we understand what the will of the Lord is? We look to His Word. We need to be consuming it and and taking it in and reading it and studying it and memorizing it and meditating upon it. That is how we are able to walk wisely in this world. We cannot walk wisely apart from the wisdom of God given in Scripture. Romans 12 tells us to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. How do we renew our minds? Through the Word of God. So that by testing renewed minds, looking at the Word of God, what is it that we get to discern? What the will of God is. So again, Paul, this point is here. Understand what the will of God is. What, how does that happen? I take God's Word, I use it to renew my mind so that I can then know what God's Word is. So, here's just one very practical way where we can take these two things together. Making the best use of our time and understanding what the, war, what the will of God is. You know what you can do with your time that will always be profitable? Read the Word. Spend time reading God's Word. And here's the thing. The more you consume God's Word, I think what Paul is going to drive us to here is that that's going to produce within you a greater sense of thanksgiving. Because what do we see in God's Word? It is God Himself that is revealed to us. It is the glory of Christ that is revealed to us. And it gives us opportunity to be thankful that God is the God who is and that He is not some other manufacturing or or figment of our imagination. That gives us true hope. Anything less than this, proper use of our time and absorption of God's word to know, understand, and walk according to God's will is foolishness. And it will not produce a thankful life. We cannot have the pattern of thanksgiving in our lives if we're not focusing and making a concentrated effort to have lives that see the glory of Christ, see His his will in our lives through His Word, and seek to live that out in the world around us. So giving thanks requires concentrated effort. You see how this is not Thanksgiving is not just something that you just sort of grab a hold of all of a sudden. Right? It, the Bible tells us to give thanks. Right? There's no doubt about that. But we have to prepare ourselves to give thanks. If we're not doing that, then all we will do is provide vain repetitions. All we will do is mouth words that behind them lies no truth in our lives. So giving thanks requires that commitment to this concentrated effort. Secondly, giving thanks requires the Holy Spirit. True gratitude requires the influence of the Holy Spirit. 
We must discipline ourselves to be thankful, but this begins with us resting not in our own power to do this, but in the power of the Spirit. It's interesting. We talk about dependence on the, on the Spirit. This is faith in action. This is actually the primary command of what Paul is telling us to do. His, his primary command, the primary verb in this whole section is be filled with the Spirit. Everything drives to it. Everything is a consequence of it. So it, when he tells us to give thanks always and for everything, what's necessary to do that? Being filled with the Spirit. We cannot be thankful apart from God's Holy Spirit. Notice what he says in verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. What we see, there's, there's three things in particular about this. The first is that we're to reject all other controlling interests in our lives. Reject all other controlling interests in our lives. Now, Paul specifically focuses on the way that alcohol can control a person's life. He speaks about how we are not to get drunk with wine. That is debauchery. And I think what he's doing is he's using that. Of course, it's true, all right? Drunkenness is a sin. The Bible is abundantly clear that drunkenness is a sin, all right? There's no two ways about it. It's black and white. Do not get drunk. But I think what Paul is doing by focusing on that is trying to break, trying to use something of an extreme nature and use it to say, maybe you need to look back and step back and see what other things are intoxicating your life. What other things do you find yourself being controlled by? Paul is forbidden intoxication here, but the principle dives deeper. Anything that controls our actions, whether it be intoxication or idols of our hearts, must be rejected. Anything. Now, why this is so important for thanksgiving and truly giving thanks is if, if I am the one who created my God, so if I have an idol of my heart, then that idol should give thanks to me for creating it, right? So I'm the one who creates and controls and manifests my own destiny. I'm the one in control of that if I'm looking to an idol, if something else besides God is controlling my interests. But if God is the only one I'm worshiping and I'm knowing Him from His Word, then it naturally flows that I'll be thankful. Why? Because everything I've received is from Him. He's God. I'm made in His image. He is not made in mine. And so I must be thankful because everything I have comes from Him. So we have to reject all other controlling interests. Secondly, we need to embrace the Spirit's control. Embrace the Spirit's control. It's interesting that the command here is to be filled with the Spirit. It is an active command using a passive verb. 
And I think what we see here is even in the way that this is constructed in the grammar, we see what we call this, this synergism that works as we grow in Christ. Christ comes, provides our, His grace to us. He saves us through a, through a power that we cannot produce in our own, but yet as that works within us, we have a responsibility to respond. And so this command, be filled with the Spirit, means that we need to be actively desiring to not be controlled by anything else, but to only be controlled by God's Spirit. This begins with being filled by the Spirit. Now, Paul elsewhere in the book of, uh, I think it's 1 Corinthians, he tells us, do you not know that your body is the what of the Holy Spirit? the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Now, now why is that important? Now, in particular, in that passage, Paul is addressing the fact that there were people who were involved in sexually immoral relationships in the church. And he said, it doesn't make sense. When you go out and you go to the temple and you hire a temple prostitute and you are united to Christ, and Christ is united to you, it's unthinkable that Christ would be united to a prostitute. Right? It's unthinkable that that would happen. And so the same reality is what Paul is pointing us to here in Ephesians chapter 5. Look, if you're filled with the Spirit, it's unthinkable that anything else would reside in God's temple, on His throne, in His place. Yet the reality is that this has been the modus operandi of God's people for millennia. All you have to do is read the Old Testament. Read Judges. Read 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Samuel, 2 Kings, Samuel, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. And, and what you see is over and over again, God's people who are called to worship God alone, what do they keep doing? Worshiping other things. See, if we're filled with the Spirit, if we're casting out controlling interests, then that means there is no room in our lives for any other things, any other gods. There's a very sad passage in Ezekiel chapter 8. Ezekiel is brought to the entrance of the court, and he looks in, and there's a hole in the wall of the court of the temple. God says to him, Son of man, dig in the wall. So Ezekiel tells us, So I dug in the wall. And behold, there was an interest. And he said to me, Go in and see the vile abominations they are committing here. The here is in the temple. So I went in and I saw And there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jazaziah, the son of Shaphion, standing among them, each with his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. So This is what Israel was supposed to do in worship to God, but yet they're doing this in the presence of other idols. 
Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark? Each in his room of pictures. For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He said also to me, you will see still greater abominations. So he brought him to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? You will see greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. This is the most sacred place. This is where God dwells with his people, where his presence would physically manifest itself as a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud. And behold, At the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men. And instead of their faces being towards the Lord, they had turned their backs on God. With their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east. And what were they doing? They were worshiping the sun toward the east. When we let something else control us, When we are not filled with the Spirit, we're doing the very same thing. This is one of the saddest accounts in the history of Israel. I think what's even sadder is that this reality is true among so many Christians. That instead of being filled with the Spirit, we tolerate idols of our hearts. This is what Paul is telling us. Look. Don't be drunk with wine. Don't be controlled by anything else. Be filled with the Spirit. Don't make room for other idols. If we're not doing this, we will never be thankful as we ought. And then the response to this, what is the result? Verse 19 We address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We sing and make melody in our heart to the Lord. While allowing other things to control us is evident in idolatrous actions. So if we love possessions, what will our life be typical of? Getting possessions. If we love pleasure, what will our life be typical of? trying to get pleasure. If we love success in our careers, what will our lives be typical of? Having a successful career. If we love Christ, what will our lives be typical of? Praising Him. Giving thanks to Him. Worshiping Him, not just with words that are mouthed according to music, but worshiping Him from our hearts. In such a way that when we come together as God's people, we speak to each other. We admonish each other. And we do it joyfully. With gladness to the Lord. And so, being filled with the Spirit Spirit is evidenced with edifying, heartfelt worship. So, when we have that as the first result, then what is the the next thing that happens 
What is the significant result of being filled with the Spirit? And it is that we are thankful for everything. We are thankful always for everything. Which brings us to our third point. Giving thanks is an all-encompassing call. So if we're striving and concentrating our effort to be guided by God's will, by seeing His glory, seeing the Spirit fill us and make us more like His Son, then thanksgiving will become a comprehensive part of our lives. He says here, first of all, that we are to give thanks how often? Always. Giving thanks always. Now the term, giving thanks... The, the term is actually a combination of two Greek words, the word for prayer and the word for grace. And it refers to giving gratitude. It's used particularly by Paul in connection with worship, that when we are worshiping, when we're singing praises to God, it is an act of thanksgiving. We see that here in our passage, singing and making melody in your heart with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Giving thanks accompanies worship. We also see it in Colossians 3, 5 through 16. The peace of Christ will rule in our hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be, what? Thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with what? Wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with what? Thankfulness. Do you notice how Paul is hitting on all the same things that he's been hitting here in Ephesians chapter 5? It's almost like the same guy wrote them. Oh, wait, he did. And in reality, the entire Scripture is written by the same Holy Spirit. God is emphasizing. You know, one of the reasons why the Bible repeats itself so often is we are so prone to be Stubborn and pig-headed and not get it. So God has to say it again and again and again. Paul particularly focuses on this attitude in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. We are to continue steadfastly in prayer. We're to be watchful in it with what? Thanksgiving. And in Philippians chapter 4, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything... By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. So it's an all-encompassing call. And Paul tells us to do this always. There is never a time when the Christian is permitted to not be grateful. Now, just think back to your last week. How many times were you not grateful? I think if we're honest with ourselves, there's tons of times. And Paul is telling us, look, you're supposed to be thankful always. Paul cannot be clearer about that. Would that we would take to heart what Paul is saying here. That we would walk in constant thankfulness that our lives would really more often than not be shown to be lives as gratitude when in reality they are more often than not not grateful 
I mean, how easy is it for us to complain? We're so prone to complaining. See, this, this was, again, nothing new. The Israelites did this. And the people, what? Complained. What is the, I think, what is the opposite of thanksgiving? Complaining. The people complained in the hearing of the Lord. Now, what's amazing here is that they're doing this actually to God. They're consciously complaining to God. The reality is, is that is there anything that is not said or done in God's presence or in His hearing? And the answer is no. God hears everything that we do. And how does God respond when His people complain about His work, which is always good in their lives? When the Lord heard it, His anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Do you see how, what God's attitude is towards ingratitude and complaining? It's not like he's like, oh, no big deal. He sent fire from heaven to consume his people who were complaining. Well, maybe we say, well, I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to complain to the Lord. I'm not going to be that brash about it. But you know what? Can I, just, can I just talk to you for a second about how upset I am with the current administration running the United States of America? Boy, these leaders, they're awful. I can't believe that we have them. And, and don't we do that so easily? Israel did the same thing. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. And in the morning, God comes and he says, Moses says, You'll see the glory of the Lord because you have heard his, your grumbling and notice who they're grumbling against. Not, he doesn't say they're grumbling against Moses and Aaron. They're grumbling against who? The Lord. For what are we, in other words, who am I, that you're to grumble against us? You see what's going on here? We, we are so prone to complain about the people in our lives and the way that they act. Now listen, I'm not saying that there isn't a place for holding people accountable for their actions. I'm not saying that we shouldn't res respond and explain to people that their actions are harming us, but that should never lead us to an attitude of ingratitude towards the Lord. We're called to truly seek this. So when are we allowed to complain? Never. We are never allowed to pro complain. When are we committed to not, or permitted to not be grateful? The answer is never. That is when Paul says, give thanks to God always. In the good and, quote unquote, in the bad. Which brings us secondly to see 
that we're to give thanks, not just always, but we're to give thanks for everything. Now, as I mentioned, it's very easy for us to give thanks when things are going well, right? It's really thankful, really easy to do that. You know, um, now, are we to give thanks for blessings? Absolutely. There are many blessings that God has given us, but we need to be careful in how we define blessing. We generally think of blessings in regards to God granting us our desires, but is that all that blessings are? No. In fact, God often blesses us by not giving us our desires. The psalmist in Psalm 119 says, You have dealt with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. You are what? Good. And as a result of God being good, what does he do? You do good. Teach me your statutes. I find this so helpful for us because the very difficulties themselves are <laughs> blessings from God. That is why Paul says, give thanks for everything. Because even the difficulties that we face, God uses them for good. Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good. Now, we don't have the time to, to hash through this, but I just wanted to point out very quickly, if you want to jot down these references, suffering is often good and used for our benefit as it was used in the life of our Savior. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, it says there that although Christ was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. It reminds us of the effects of sin and should cause us to reject it and yearn more for our salvation in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, Romans 8, 22 through 25. We, along with all of creation, is groaning. We are all groaning under sin. It's used to conform us more into the image of Christ so that we can have lives of godliness. Hebrews 12, 11. Discipline seems painful, but it yields peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been Trained by it. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, that the light momentary affliction prepares us for an eternal weight of glory. As we've seen in Peter, Peter tells us that he, God uses our affliction to show the world what goodness looks like as it works in our lives. And it itself, the suffering itself, is a form of of blessing from God. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are what? Blessed. So, we talk about, should we give thanks for blessings? Yes. Should we give thanks for difficulties? Yes. But the reality is, they're all blessings. God never does anything that is not good. So even if we suffer, even if we do not get what we desire, this is also a blessing from God. Because in Christ, we only receive 
blessings. This is the glory of knowing Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There is nothing that is withheld from the blessings of God's eternal storehouse for those who are in Christ. So giving thanks is an all-encompassing call. Giving thanks always and for everything. Very quickly, giving thanks, fourthly, is Christ-centered. Look at verse, again, 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the center of everything in the Christian life. We must give thanks to God in His name. Because apart from the name of Christ, we have no hope for blessing. That is why Paul begins by saying we need to look upon the glory of Christ. He is the one who shines upon us. As John says in John 1, from the fullness of Christ we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through who? Jesus Christ. And then, as giving thanks is Christ-centered, the final thing that giving thanks does is it produces humility. Look at, the, look at verse 21. As we're giving thanks, what are we then very easily ready to do? We're ready to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This requires humility. Humility is the necessary attitude of genuine thanksgiving. Listen, if, if I am the cause of everything good in my life, then that doesn't produce humility. It produces what? Pride. And pride then says, I'm not to serve you. You're to serve me because I'm the best thing since sliced bread. You see it in the entitled attitudes of people who think they're all that and a bag of chips. And the, the person who is truly thankful recognizes that anything they are, is the, they, they are that by the grace of God. So there's no room for pride in a truly thankful heart. Which means then that we're willing to submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. We recognize, as James tells, James tells us, that every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. So, the pattern of thanksgiving. Time taken out in our lives must be time spent wisely, knowing the glory of Christ, letting our lives be filled with the Spirit so that we give thanks always and for everything, focusing upon the greatest gift of God's grace, Christ Himself, which brings us to a point where we live lives that are submissive to each other. I remember seeing this exhibited in 
a man who's somewhat well-known Christian. Uh, I had heard a sermon by him years ago, and in that sermon he had mentioned something that someone uh, was, de- was dealing with a, pro- a similar problem. And I reached out to him. I had a little bit of a relationship with him. I reached out to him and said, you know, if you could just pray for me about this situation. His secretary emails me back and says, when is a good time for him to get on the phone with you? I was floored. This man took about an hour and a half out of his very, very busy schedule to talk with me on the phone. Now, he, he had much more, quote-unquote, important things to do. There were a lot more influential people. I mean, this guy has sit, sit, sat in the presence of presidents and kings and, and just all sorts of people, and he took the time to spend time with me. I was very thankful for that. But he only got to that point because he recognized and was thankful that, for what God had done in him. See, if, if we're really going to show thankfulness to each other, we're really going to show what it means to be thankful, we show it by submitting to each other. One of the great ironies of the world in which we live today is that Black Friday comes after Thanksgiving, a day in which we are supposedly giving thanks is followed by a day in which we are the most selfish, prideful, unsubmitting people on the face of the planet as we fight over Tickle Me Elmo. True Thanksgiving produces humility and submission. So, this Thanksgiving, there's a lot here. I realize we hit a lot in this passage. But Paul gives us a pattern for Thanksgiving. May we be thankful by God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, by your spirit, through our reflection upon the glory of Christ, our redeeming of the time, our focusing upon you, Lord, may we be thankful always and for everything. Work in our hearts to make this real in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.